GCA as an organization was actually founded in 2015, founded by a group of law enforcement agencies largely. Well, it was the District Attorney of New York, the City of London Police, and CIS in the U.S. that collectively had the idea of forming this organization and provided five years of seed funding for it. So it's a not-for-profit organization that is focused on addressing cybersecurity challenges at scale. And my part of the organization, the Internet Integrity Program, is specifically focused on working with internet network infrastructure operators and building community to address the internet cybersecurity challenges at scale. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, I'm talking to Leslie Daigle from the Global Cyber Alliance. Leslie has been working on a threat detection system based on HoneyNets with a specific interest in Internet of Things, IoT devices. It's now more generally applicable internet-wide, and it can help BGP speakers and others understand the risks from the outside world and inside their own network. Global Cyber Alliance is also involved in the Quad9 DNS service, and more recently, the Manners Project. Leslie and I discussed all of this and more at IETF Prague at the end of 2023. Leslie, welcome to Ping. Thank you. Glad to be here. Can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I've been working in the internet industry for more years than I'm going to admit right at the moment, but started out working with developing standards for applications infrastructure and then sort of wandered through a number of for-profit jobs and now have been working in the not-for-profit space for a good 15 years or so. You've had time in ISOC working on programs there. Indeed. And you had leadership roles here in the IETF as Indeed, well. Indeed, all of the above. So even when I was working in for-profit companies, it was always with a healthy dose of being involved in the IETF. And I was IEB chair for seven years, chaired it for five years. And then from that position, I wound up saying, you know, helping develop these things is really important to me. So I went and became the Internet Society's first Chief Internet Technology Officer in 2007. Yeah, that's what it was. Good gig. It was. It was a lot of fun to be really focused on how to help the internet evolve as a whole. So this is a measurement podcast and your current positioning, you're working with a group called Global Cyber Alliance, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And there's a strong measurement story in some of the work that you guys do. But could you talk a little bit about GCA so we understand the domain? Sure. So first of all, GCA as an organization was actually founded in 2015, founded by a group of law enforcement agencies, largely. Well, it was the District Attorney of New York, the City of London Police, and CIS in the U.S. that collectively had the idea of forming this organization and provided five years of seed funding for it. So it's a not-for-profit organization that is focused on addressing cybersecurity challenges at scale. And my part of the organization, the Internet Integrity Program, is specifically focused on working with internet network infrastructure operators and building community to address the internet cybersecurity challenges at scale. Mm. It's a big problem. I mean, this is certainly not a problem that's getting any smaller over time. Absolutely not. But I think it's also, there are any number of challenges that 
it's easy for the challenges to sort of stay hidden or invisible in different pockets of the internet. And it's really only when you shine a light on the internet as a whole that you can start to see patterns and things that need to be done. And that's yeah. where our measurement stuff sort of comes in because we have a couple of projects that are collecting data, objective evidence of bad activity on the internet with a view to helping inform the network infrastructure operators who can actually do something about it and then getting them to understand what can they do as a community. So we have a program in APNIC that we have talked about on the podcast and the blog before called DASH, the Dashboard for AS Health. And it's fed from a honey net collection, which Adli Wahid, who's part of FIRST, has been working on. But we're really quite strongly focused on providing member service. So for us, the primary interface is because you come to APNIC to do resource management, we're helping you understand the behavior of your resources. But you have actually a broader remit than that. You're really covering the global internet, aren't you? Yep, indeed. And so we have, as you know, have a global honey farm that has, we have 200 sensors deployed in quite a number of countries across the globe. Um, 200? 200. Wow, that's really quite a large mesh. It is a large mesh. It's actually smaller than our original mesh, but it's but we determined a couple of years ago that that was a pretty reasonable footprint for it. So for people who aren't au fait with the idea of honey farms and honey nets, the idea here is kind of funny, isn't it? It's putting up a machine that has red lights all over it saying, come and try to break into me. I'm not secure. The particular honey pots that we have in that honey farm are basically, they're really simplistic they look like the standard OS you might find on an IoT device, and that was the original intent of deploying that honey farm. So they just sit there and act like anything that might be sitting on an open IPv4 port. And the data that we're collecting is is showing all manner of, of activity of entities trying to crack into any open IPv4 port. And as a concrete example, I mean, I've looked at some of the IP addresses that I see trying to break into my home file server, and it's yeah. like, it's all the same IP addresses. Yeah. So there's a case where there's clearly organized activity across the globe that's just poking everything that's open and accessible and seeing what they can do in terms of breaking in and taking over devices. So things like distributed denial of service attacks, they're generally about making machines emit traffic and, if possible, more traffic coming out than you put into them. Mm -hmm. They're also about spoofing the origin address sometimes. But honey nets aren't so much about spoofed address. They're actually about threat actors that have taken control, maybe, of resources or operating from their own machines. And what they're doing is establishing valid IP protocol connections between them and some device and breaking in. Yep. And largely often with the purpose of establishing their a, a larger footprint of their own control devices that they can then use either to do a DDoS attack or any kind of... We see a lot of Mirai uh, attacks in our honey farm. We see a lot of other things too. For instance, when we were going through the data recently, we discovered that you know, these are not just sort of random kids sitting in their basement doing odd things well, on occasion. Well, there probably is some of that, oh, but I'm that's sure not there's still all some of that. Is. But it's certainly not all of it. I mean, this is actually now to the point where it's business because we would see that there were entities that were taking over one of our honeypots and then attempting to run crypto mining on it. Because, you know, yeah. why just own a device when you can actually own a device and make some money on the side while you're waiting to sell? So the value proposition isn't just collecting broken assets to sell to another bad actor. It's actually using the yep. CPU to try and earn coin. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny. Very strange. It's interesting you say IoT because there's this meme of 
internet of things and then internet of stupid things, they really do come out of the factory with remarkably low barriers to people breaking in, don't they? They do. It's better now. It's better now since the Dyn attack some years ago, yeah. where a number of IoT devices were basically marshaled into perpetrating a, a DDoS attack against Dyn, which took out DNS service to a number of critical services. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that kind of got everybody's attention and, and attention on the fact that most IoT devices came, if they had any passwords at all, they were default passwords yeah. and they were not updatable. And that's, in most countries, that's not permissible any longer. So there's been a pushback into regulation inside yep. economies That's, that develop technology to try and limit these risks. And in terms of economies that are looking to permit the importation of such devices. Oh, so tick marks like yep. we used to get on telecoms equipment, they've now got to certify. Exactly. So certification is a big thing, but it's also clearly an important thing in order to attest to such things as reconfigurability at that level. It doesn't do a lot for the thousands, if not millions, of IoT light bulbs that are deployed across well, the world. Right. There were millions sold before this came exactly. in. So to come back to a measurement sense, you're running a network of about 200 points that stand up and say, hey, I'm breakable, break me. And you're getting a feed of the attempts to connect in, the packet flows. Yeah, we, what we see is who is trying to connect, what credentials are they using, and once they're in, what are they doing? And this is not a time of day thing. These things are just live 24 by Absolutely. 7. Absolutely. And we see a lot of attacks 24 by 7. We started characterizing the different sources. We see some IP addresses are attacking us sporadically. Mm. Some IP addresses are attacking us periodically. There were about five IP addresses that touched our original honey farm every single day for over two years. So it's not always that attacks are coming from new, previously unseen IPs. You are actually seeing persisting yes. addresses that are sources of bad faith. And that's the really challenging part because there's no real excuse for that sort of thing. No. Uh, you know, any system that is being properly maintained and updated should have at least been rebooted in that time. And rebooting a system that's running Mirai will effectively erase it. It has to get reinfected. So this is quite a strong sign that there's yep. still a huge population of persistently online, persistently insecure, broken places that in turn become the places that launch attacks yep. and you're seeing them collecting them in your honey net and i mean the picture that i think that that paints is that there is an awful lot of underground activity i mean saying that it sounds trite i mean everybody understands yeah yeah there's lots of stuff going on but we can really start to characterize which networks are the ones that are the source of most of these attacks or an inordinate number of these attacks and then that leads us to the point of wanting to have a discussion with network operators yeah. and ask them the basic question as i did at right in may of 2022 what is a reasonable amount of this kind of traffic to be coming out of a network? Yeah, it's, it's a good question to ask because you're so tempted to say zero because everyone wants the world to be pure, but you have to be realistic. Right. There's a threshold that you have to say, I probably can't reach every customer I've got. I have to accept a certain norm at some level. Absolutely. How far above a norm do you go before somebody should act? But Leslie, there's another problem here, which Dash reached very early on. 
it just isn't a good posture for us to be in name and shame. We can't do public communications in the wide about where the problem sources are. We do sometimes talk at the economy level, but even that has pretty big risks because that becomes almost political statements. So how are you communicating with people about this? So we're, we are also not in the naming and shaming game because I don't think it produces anything that's really useful. We're instead talking in generalities in network operator group environments to see who is interested in coming to talk to us about what's going on in their network. So you give people the general picture and you then invite them to come for a consult if they think they might have an exposure of risk. And if they don't have a lot of, I mean, the, the first question is, you know, tell us your AS and we'll let you know what we're seeing from your network. But even if we're not seeing stuff from that autonomous system, we certainly want to know, well, why not, right? What are you doing right? Oh, sure. There so, might be positive lessons to learn. And so can we extract some of those positive lessons and share them with other networks and say, this is what you should consider doing. It seems to be operationally feasible for some networks. Yeah. I think it goes to the community spirit side Mm -hmm. of things that there's sort of defensive postures in network isn't really a good place for people to say my competitive edge is that I'm good at protecting. Mm -hmm. I mean, everyone should be good at protecting. Sure, you could have additional layers, but there is a kind of base level of behavior we're looking for here, which is not allowing bad stuff like this to persist. And the two strong arguments that I would make sort of in generalities, and there are many more to make to individual network operators, the two strong ones that I would make are if we reduce the amount of this nonsense traffic, I think it would be a lot easier to see the more targeted and specific attacks that are buried in this. Right. And then the other thing is, if you have an IP address that is persistently attacking all of the networks all the time, like those five IP addresses I mentioned, like the only rational defense against that is, is for that IP address to get blocked. Yeah. I mean, I'm not in favor of cutting holes in the internet by blocking no. IP addresses, but people are going to do that. Yeah. And if they do that, then, then I posit that the value of that IP address plummets. So we've kind of come to an interesting place because the history of address management has had quite a long time of people believing things about networks. There's the idea of golden networks, the networks that are somehow special. And there's the belief that network blocks identify individual economies. So for a period of time, the US Department of Defense was concerned about address attacks that were coming from a range of addresses. It doesn't really matter where they were coming from. The point was they believed it was directed and they excluded that block. Right and then excluded a whole bunch of players in other economies that had nothing to do with the attack. So there's quite a lot of latent risk in winding up in a place where the only rational thing is to block an address. If you think about maybe co-tenants in a service with SNI, you block it because the bad faith actor does something, you've taken out five unassociated business. You probably won't be able to diagnose that because you may not actually even feel the, the ramifications. Yeah, you may not know because it's third-party damage. There's all kinds and, of consequences. And, and I'll tell you a funny story about that sort of directed attack challenge. Shortly after Russia invaded Ukraine 18 months ago, we had a look at, like, well, gosh, did we see any sudden uptick of attacks sure. one way or the other right before the invasion? So we went to see what was going on with our Ukraine sensor. It's like, yeah, there doesn't seem to be any increase of attacks from Russia to our Ukraine sensor in the weeks leading up. Oh, well, that's interesting. There were a couple of spikes, though. Yeah. But there were a couple of spikes coming from Canada. Like, Canada's attacking Ukraine? I don't What's think so. What's this? So we dug into that a little bit more and discovered it was really chiefly two IP addresses. Right. So we dug into that a little bit more, and we discovered that there were two IP addresses in one of the large networks in Canada that's a home network. 
home ISP. And those IP addresses are known to be associated with a Tor-like sure. service, right? So I don't think Canada was attacking Ukraine. I think it was somebody said, yeah, sure, I want to be part of this VPN and, you know, that yeah. you'll, I'll let you pass traffic. And so that's an interesting cautionary tale of signing up for a VPN where you don't know who's going to be sending traffic through your IP address. You have to be very careful about becoming a third party involved mm -hmm. in the transit of packets that you don't have much knowledge of what they're doing. It's a dangerous business. So you've mentioned Mirai, and that's really quite an old attack. We're but, going back quite a few years here. Yeah, quite a few years for the attack, the successful attack on Dyne, but there is still a lot of Mirai circulating out there and you know, repropagating. There are new variants of it that are repropagating. It is still very much a going concern, even if even if you only get a mild case of Mirai, there, there still could be long-lasting effects. <laughs> <laughs> Please consult your internet physician before considering any remediation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so what kind of results do you typically see if we're looking across a day of this risk you're breaking this down by the protocol port by whether it's tcp or udp carried attacks yeah so we chiefly are collecting information over telnet and ssh and primarily tcp in our main honey farm we also have a, a honeypot technology ourselves which can do http and https but we currently are deploying that only in sort of specific instances and specific deceptions. So you're not yet measuring, say, significant threats embedded in quick networks? No. Or TLS-wrapped nope. sessions? We are still looking at sort of at the general level of attack traffic on the internet. And I mean, always we're looking to evolve evolve our activities to see what would be the useful thing to measure next. But the answer to the question of what would be the useful thing to measure next is very much dependent on going back to what are internet network operators interested in solving in their networks? Because yeah. all of our work really is about trying to help shine a light on where are their problems in the internet, raise objective awareness of these problems, and then identify what are the right actions that network operators can and should be taking to address them. I mean, that's the level of work that we're doing in this particular yeah. activity, which is, by the way, the AID project, the Automated IoT Defense Ecosystem was the original name of the project. That's a bit unpronounceable. Yeah, so we just say AID. And we are doing some of the same sort of thing in domain abuse and looking at sharing information around domain names that are, are seen to be believed to be registered for criminally malicious intent. So DNS OARC has had quite a rich conversation about these name forms called DGA, hash right. number, mm -hmm. generated name strings. And it's always intrigued me if it's so abundantly clear that this is a synthetic name like this, why do why registrars do we allow, them? allow them to persist? Do they have a valid use case? So... Let's talk about the internet, where it's not a question of does some does everybody understand what everybody is doing, but rather we put guideposts around not what is acceptable. Well, it has either, been characterized as yeah. permissionless networking. Exactly. It's not a bounded set of things. So, so the innovation opportunity so here. The, so it's not impossible that there are legitimate use cases for dynamically generated domain names for registering individual devices or individual services uh, in Even ways that, IOTs, for instance, yeah, could be doing in ways that. that are, you know, not intended ever to be human consumable. I'm not actually an IoT person. I don't have, hey, Siri, make the bulbs go mm -hmm. red. I just don't engage in that space. But I know people who do. And I think they kind of, and we're talking non-internet geeky people, mm -hmm. they kind of know there's a third place that has to rendezvous to manage some of this right. stuff. It doesn't always work inside the home right. network. 
I think they probably feel good about saying, well, it doesn't say the name of my house. It yes. says this hash string. Exactly. You don't want people knowing exactly. that you've got these smart bulbs. You yes. Know? So a context like that, or even the context of a generalized service that says we need to spin up a node and we need to be able to identify it. Yeah. Um, and we don't want to make it just a subdomain of our company name. No. We need to distribute management of it or whatever. I mean, those are the general. So it's kind of funny that we're living in this V6 world where people were discussing address randomization, the birthday paradox, picking unique values to use here. And now we've moved into domain names. It's the same problem. Pick a unique hash string in a domain label space that you can operate that doesn't reveal enough that it's risky for the people concerned. And the bad actors go, oh, I can live inside that. Yes. The other thing, too, is that we have put so much on DNS in terms of what it is used for. Well, That's the is, classic answer. Yeah. Put it in the DNS. Absolutely. Because, you know, after all, DNS is the last successfully deployed. Yeah. Know, globally distributed key value store. Exactly. So there are a lot of potentially legitimate reasons for dynamically right. generated domain names. So we can't see, block them as a whole. No, but when you see things happening inside the honey net that relate back to name strings and you start to see patterns of use of things like DGA names, you can kind of cross the beam. Sure, they could be legitimate, but you know for certain these names are also representing threats. So you're exploring the, the space of name behavior yeah, as so well? Yeah, so we are looking at name behavior, but we're also collecting information from other sources about the na domain names that they see and believe are registered for criminally malicious purposes. Again, with the same general intent of getting the attention of registries and registrars and saying, you know, the problem is real, we can yeah. size it, and what are you going to do about it? I think I may have seen on the website that GCA has some association with the managed DNS solution, the, the uh, DNS service. Is it 8888 is possibly oh, quad involved? Nine. Quad 9. Yes. I was off by one. <laughs> <laughs> off by one error. I don't yeah. know. Um, yeah, so uh, GCA actually built the first instance of what is now the Quad 9 service. Oh, wow, right. Yeah. yeah. And that in some ways has beneficent feed information. You can see names that people are querying for as well as using that facility because Quad9 is designed to be protecting DNS. Yeah, so our work with collecting threat feeds for abusive domains is actually independent of the, the source that Quad9 has. It's an independent project, but yes, cross-referencing is useful. Yeah. Quad9 has a very rigorous desire not to have false positives. So cross-referencing the lists we have with what they have is, is certainly very interesting in terms of making sure that we're not being too generous in what we collect. So it's a measurement project. It's collecting a feed of people who are originating bad outcomes. It's TCP traffic, typically Telnet and SSH. It's quite a long, old pattern of attack. But the bottom line is that's still a live risk. It was originally motivated in IoT. Sounds like it's got general applicability. Yeah, I think we recognize that we need to stop calling the aid project an IoT project because, as I said, you know, we see that this is traffic that's sitting in the open IPv4 port. And yes, we are exploring IPv6 because... I was going yeah. to ask because you mentioned four, but building out services like this to be discoverable in six yes. is actually quite a logistical problem. It is a logistical challenge and where we see that, that bad actors are in fact scanning IPv4 space multiple times a day, that's not really feasible in IPv6. So there are interesting implications for how should you deploy IPv6? How should you, yeah. what's a good defensive posture? And then how do you set up a honey farm in that So space? I, haven't, I haven't been able to get him to come on ping yet, but I would really 
really love to talk with Dave Plonker because he's done quite a lot of work in address discovery mm -hmm. and in the patterns of behavior that people use. So when I did manual numbering in six, I started at one and incremented to two and got up to 32. That's a short walk. So people have to understand the implications of what humans can handle in their head for a numbering scheme is probably where a bad actor is going to test mm -hmm. when they start looking for valid addresses. Whereas the max string and the privacy address behavior, that's kind of more interesting in a way. It's very hard to sweep through, except virtually all the line cards on computers live in maybe five or six Mac prefix spaces. It's not a bigger number space as people think it is. Yet. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that that's one of the things that we hope to illuminate is what are the activities and what are the patterns? Yeah. And therefore, what are the things that we should be doing differently for deploying an IPv6 space? So we might say at this stage that people aren't aggressively using 6 in this, but we're also not aggressively testing. Yes. And there's going to be a crossing point where it's viable to attack in 6 and we're going to have to make the honey nets measure in 6. Yep. But that's future work. It is. So off to one side from measurement, because measurement is purposeful. We're not here just to collect numbers, that's stamp collecting. We're here to do good. Mm -hmm. Yes, what I was outlining before in terms of the work that we've done in measurement and, and trying to bring network operators together to identify what are the things that should be done should sound a lot like the work that has been done to determine what are the mutually agreed norms for routing security. Because that was the first step in developing what would be a useful approach to actually improving the state of routing security across the internet. And that was work that Andrei Robachevsky started at the Internet Society while I was still there way back when. Yeah, I remember some of the conversations about doing this work. And it's a really interesting problem. Everybody knows that some things are happening in routing and packet forwarding that are really unfortunate. And so it's not that we don't all collectively in the, in the space of people that route packets know this exists. The thing is that it's really hard to make a surface of minimum commitment visible that companies can adhere to because it kind of gets non-competitive behavior. It's a cost. Well, it's, it's even more than that. At the time the original discussions were happening, there was a lot of work being done on standardizing an approach to securing BGP, you know, yeah. using RPKI. I mean, this was all a decade ago or more, and the compute power wasn't there. Any number of things were not, yeah. were just were not were, there. There were parallel activities like BCP38 adoption yeah. that were being looked so at. So there were a combination of sort of operational activities and then this effort to apply cryptographic approaches to securing yeah. routing information. And so the manners work really was focused on setting aside what seemed to make sense from a let's crypto it, yeah. Um, what were the things that network operators could agree to? Because it's the kinds of problems that we deal in at GCA are the kinds of problems that no entity can solve on its own. Yeah, you and have like, to come into a collective you sense. You have to, of, because like no network operator can secure their routing. Well, no, it's that you make an assertion of what you do, but it's how other people interpret it that determines so having, the package. So flows. having consistency in what is said and how it is interpreted is imperative. Right. And so those are the norms. And, you know, these are the actions that if you say you are participating in manners, then these are the things that you actually must be doing in your network in order to be compliant. And that's not, that's not like a God-given list that comes down from the mountain. It's agreed amongst the participants yes. that they see these norms as the acceptable yes. behavior. Acceptable and operationally rational yeah. in this day and age. I, I think that's really important because we're in an arena where increasingly states and 
regions like the EU and NAFTA are having to think hard about whether they have to force this yes. through legislative forcing. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's an okay thing for people to do. That's what a state is. It's someone that has to think about duty of care. But it doesn't mean we can't mutually agree right. in sort of self-governance structures what we think are good things to do. And that kind of regulation will be much more successful if what it is doing is amplifying stuff that the networks have already agreed is viable. Yeah. I've heard a statement that quite often regulators are actually looking for this kind of mutuality to then come along and say, guys, if you really agree this is what it is, we're happy to give you a good housekeeping tick mm -hmm. because you came up with it. We're not asking you to do things that you can't do. We'd much rather you agreed what you can and we'll say that's a minimum compliance. Yeah, it, it is true that I don't think there are very many governments around the world that really want to know enough about routing security to specifically tell their operators <laughs> what to do. No. But they have legitimate concerns. You sure. know, legitimate concerns about getting taken off the network or having significant impact in their economies because of routing challenges. So. so this isn't actually relevant because if we go back to Mirai, there was a quite significant incident in one of the island communities in my footprint, in the Asia Pacific footprint, where something north of 75% of all the consumer endpoints in that economy were in Mirai. And so when you think about the impact on off-island communications that right. that many stations are participating in a bad act, that's choking up a narrow resource. That's wasteful for the economy because they're not exactly rich in bandwidth or resources. So resolving these problems actually can go all the way to state threats. Right. In many cases, they may not be visible problems, and but it is important to understand with data that they are real problems and that even if you in your particular place are not seeing you yeah. know, particular problems with it at this moment, it is causing real damage elsewhere. So do you see this aid activity moving into a manners-like engagement? That's my hope. So aid and the domain abuse stuff is, is a different project called Domain Trust, and it works mostly with sort of registries, registrars in that community. I see both of them as being on a path to hopefully growing up to being something like manners where there are agreed norms or activities or baselines. And then our work would be to get more, you know, to create the dashboard that shows individual entities yeah. how they fare in this particular as against the norms and then have the resources to enable more entities to do the things that they need to do, which is the blueprint of what manners is today. Yeah. And... ISOC, as is natural in that kind of body, is looking at a program that's essentially mature and decided it was time for it to live free and to be less of an ISOC activity. But Yeah, GCA was very happy to enter into a partnership with ISOC to take on manners from the beginning of 2024 and, you know, help it, help it continue to grow, to help it to continue to be a community-led activity for all the reasons that we've been touching on so far today. Yeah. It's but a good it really fit. Is, it's a good fit. You can see it on sort of an arc of evolution for all of our projects. And it will be interesting to see how to help Manners go to its next level of, of development and use that, again, as a drawing function for the yeah. other activities. Manners has a really quite nice sense of the dashboard that it shows it people. Has, it has the Manners Observatory, which is yeah, a yeah. great tool. So there's a similar observatory mm -hmm. model in your mind for how people look at this threat. So, issue. yeah, for aid, we do have data and we have a variety of interfaces, but, you know, we, the next step there is basically to, to say for the particular problems that we're trying to solve with reducing unwanted traffic out of networks, 
what what would be what would be useful to a network operator to see from our data? Yeah, because you know we can we can plaster the world with data, but it won't be meaningful if it isn't in you know answering questions that the average consumer would have. So in Dash, we decided the base view would be the norm in my area because we have tagging that goes to region and economy and then me against the norm. Right. And it meant that we could say, well, there's a greater norm that we're not 100% sure about, but in your economy, it could be any economy. I mean, I'll say Australia, but I'm not trying to objectify Australia as a bad source of traffic, but you'd be able to see, wow, my AS is really significantly above. For some lucky few, you also get to say, woo, my AS is below. I'm actually ahead of the pack here. So people get to rank against what's normal in their immediate peering circuit. And that kind of worked for us because there's generally an IX, a local IX inside the economy. And to that extent, there's a mutuality kind of sitting there. So presenting a level and saying where you are against it, that felt kind of respectful to their own privacy, but also the public component is there. We can say, well, if you can't log into Dash, here's some data right. about what's going on at the economy or region level. That's that's a really interesting approach. I mean, we haven't gotten that far, but in individual conversations with network operators, we have said, you know, here's a graph. Here's a graph of four network operators in your region of your approximate so size. So kind of small yeah, and local. Yeah, this one is you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, you know, you can literally see executives' eyes focus, yeah. laser focus, yes. and they try to figure out yes. which one are the others. And, and the other interesting thing in that, too, is that, you know, when we did that, the graphs all had very different shapes. So that's the other thing that they don't cohere. I mean, in bigger stats, obviously there is a coherent pattern, but when you come down to the level of AS1 versus AS2, they can be all over the place. And I posit that some of that is just differences in either differences in composition of who are they supporting? Are they supporting individual end users? Are they supporting yeah. enterprises or what? Sure, because SME traffic just has a completely right. different weekend, weekday yep. profile to, to home use, which has these weird diurnal swings. Yep. Or is it that there are different network operational practices that allow them to catch problems and stop them well, before they There leave? could well be. I've heard a story that Deutsche Telekom, for instance, has a turn off at night option on some of their nets. They force an address reassignment, huh. perhaps not DT, maybe it's another German network. But the idea, well, I have this IP and it's pretty persistent, they're making sure that that isn't static. If you want static, it's a different class of behavior. And I could well believe there are some operators who do turn behaviors right. on some duty cycle that actually breaks breaks links. It will do the thing you said about Mirai yep. persisting till off. So that's interesting. And, and that's exactly the kind of thing that we're trying to sort of collect information on as well, because it would be interesting to know what's effective intentionally or, or unintentionally in yeah. addressing some of these problems. I like that quality that you're actually engaging with the AS holder saying, what do you do that's good, as well mm -hmm. as trying to tell them, here's the stuff that's bad. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really nice kind of joint outcome. Well, and, and we recognize that our expertise is in seeing what's happening. You know, we are not network operators. We don't have an AS. So I would really rather talk to AS holders that say, you know, what what are the things that work for you? Yeah. Then try to make it up. This is quite a long-term activity, isn't it? It's not just started recently. You have a backline. That's correct. We actually started the Honey Farm about four years ago. So we've got a pretty good depth of data. Yeah, which means people can understand things like growth over time against mm -hmm. market size, whatever other trend they're interested in looking at. Yes.
it's always a little challenging because when you move sensors, then it takes a while for them to get found and you've lost some of your longitudinal study ability. But we do have a quantity of data that has, it's a gold mine. Yeah, it's valuable. I think these things stand as quite big value propositions for people to model other behaviors mm -hmm. against. So I think it's a net benefit to the community overall. Well, and, and our interest, again, is really in what can we learn from it about positive and negative trends in the network and things to improve in terms of not just unwanted traffic, but also, you know, can we get to the point of understanding the signatures of particular kinds of attacks? Because if we clear out some of that noise of just the random Mirai crawling around sure. the network. If you can start to see patterns of behavior. Then we could actually get to the point of having some ideas of what should be blocked that isn't just blocking an IP address. Yeah. You know, if you see this kind of, a, of behavior over a period of hours, days, whatever, yeah. then you want to be cautious about what you accept. Well, it's the gold standard that's out there. It's something that is generally what we're doing in measurement is looking behind what we've right. seen happen, but getting to the point of predictive qualities would be an enormous benefit outcome. About getting to predictive, successful predictive qualities, right? I mean, oh, anyone can make uh, a guess. Well, no, no, I mean, because I think you're right in saying that everything we're talking about is very retrospective, but that's also the case for any big data approach to anything is, yeah. is guaranteed to be largely firmly planted in the past. Yep. So it's a challenge. Yep, it's a challenge. If people are interested in engaging with you, there's a way that they can actually book yep. time, maybe get you to present in a NOG meeting or come and talk to a, an ISP. Yeah, we certainly are interested in talking to ISPs and you can find our info at globalcyberalliance.org. Email address will find its way to us. And happy to talk at NOGs and, and to talk to you know more people directly because I think there's this really does have to be addressed at the level of what are the problems that network operators see and what are the implementations they're willing to undertake to address the problems. Leslie, it's been super talking to you about this. Really interesting. Thank, Thank you. you. It's been a lot of fun. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, Remember, the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time. <laughs>